Amen. Now we're going to look at Scripture, Holy Scripture, and we're going to look at 2 John. Um, now, I've been, I've been preaching at different places recently, um, and I've, I've, I've really been thinking about this passage in different churches because um, I, th- I think there, there are a number, um, well, all of Scripture, of course, is God's inspired word, but there are some particular passages which I think really speak to our cultural moment today and uh, speak about the importance of evangelism as well and, and what that looks like in today's day and age and the challenge that faces the church in the, in, in the kind of, I was going to say the early 20th 21st century, but the, the 21st century is moving on quite fast into the 20s, and um, there are so many challenges uh, to uh, the church, and I think 2 John really helps us to navigate some uh, of those challenges. So we hear God's word, written so long ago, but inspired for us and the church today. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Give thanks to God for his inspired scripture. And So if you have a Bible and you want to turn again to, to 2 John, and as I've said, I've had the, I've had the privilege uh, of being able to preach in the last couple of weeks um, in different places, Ballycale, and then I was in, would you believe, Nashville. Uh, I was over for the uh, American uh, Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly uh, a couple of weeks ago, so I was preaching in Nashville, and then the General Assembly was in Memphis, and uh, then this morning I was in um, Connor and swapping with Philip Thompson there. And, and I've been sharing from this passage because this, this passage, um, as I've said to you a moment ago, it really contains, I think, uh, truths for us. Um, in, the, in those different places that I've preached, you know, one, one of the common themes in the Western church, I think, uh, at the minute, um, not everywhere, uh, but in, in many places, is just like a nervousness, like a nervousness about culture change. And even here in Bucknell, there's a good number here this evening, plenty of cars in the car park, and you're building a new church, and, and the Lord is evidently blessing your church. But, you know, for a lot of congregations out there, there are huge challenges. And uh, even here in Ballymena, 
You know, we're, we're starting in this presbytery, we're starting to feel um, the, that cool breeze of, of, of secularism or even um, cynicism um, as people think about the gospel. Um, I read an article a couple of weeks ago by a guy called Chris Watkin. Um, he's an English academic based in Australia. And he made the point that if you go up to someone today and you say, you know, you need to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Well, that's, that's pretty common to hear around here. Uh, and even, you know, in Ballykeel, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we said that to someone, you need, you need to trust in Jesus for salvation. He made the point in this article that if you went up to somebody, say, in the streets of London or Sydney today, and you said that, they would just stare at you. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what, what are you talking about? Salvation. I mean, I go to the gym. You know, I've got money in the bank. I, I don't need salvation. Trust. That's, you're gullible. You know, what are you talking to me for? And what can makes the point in this article that you know, when, we, when, when we talk about evangelism and mission, the, the, the watching world suspects that we're preying on the vulnerable or, or the weak, that we're exploiting people. So there's lots of reasons why that's the case. And I think, I think um, what Chris Watkins says in his article, um, it's on the Gospel Coalition website. It's well worth reading. I think he's substantially right in what he says. There's deep, deep cynicism out there today about the message of the gospel in the church. Now, of course, such was always the case. But it's very, it seems very, he says the word, pervasive at the minute. And the reason why he says that is because the culture in which we're in um, effectively catechizes people in a powerful way in which has never really happened before. And the reason, of course, uh, is, is, is partly because of these things, right? You know, and they're not bad. You know, we all have iPhones and, you know, we all have you know, smartphones and we all watch YouTube and we all access social media, or at least most of us do. You know, but that's one of the reasons why, you know, Young minds, and, and generally, collectively, people's minds today are being catechized by the culture around. And then, of course, on top of that, you've got you know, 24, 24 hour news, you've got constant access to this technology, you've got a fragmentation of traditional institutions, newspapers, educational institutions that universities are being destroyed by political correctness, uh, the family's being destroyed, all sorts of um, gender identities now are being invented, or you know, the, there's a great, great fragmentation going on. Nobody's speaking with any authority, and all of this change is happening so fast. We're in such flux in the West. Of course, this is not true in 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 many parts of the world, but in the West, this is true. It's happening so fast, and we're in such a state of flux that the average Christian might be forgiven for thinking, "Well, there's nothing we can do about it." It's like putting your finger. In a dam. Well, you know, the Apostle John is right near the end of his life. Um, he's a very old man. He's probably writing to the church in Ephesus. It's the end of the first century. And none of the contemporary challenges that I've just put to you would really have taken him by surprise. Now, certainly the speed with which things happen would have taken him by surprise. I mean, they didn't have any iPhones in the first century church, granted that. But the challenges to the gospel would not have taken him by surprise because the first century AD was a time of many gods, many religions. Uh, it was a time of extreme immorality. So, you know, a lot of the confusion 
uh, gender confusion, the sexual liberation, the, the, the kind of stuff that we find so shocking, provocative and, and new to us actually was part of um, the sexual ethic of the Greco-Roman world. Um, people were exploited, economic injustice, um, terrible discrimination against women and children. Um, the church was a minority. It was growing fast, uh, but the church was a minority. The gospel was under constant threat. Now, what was the Apostle John's response? Well, his response here in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, uh, we're thinking about 2 John tonight, was, was to say that loving truth, the loving truth of the gospel changes lives in a challenging age. The loving truth of the gospel changes lives in a challenging age. And we're going to think about that tonight in four ways. The first thing that we're going to think about tonight is the fact that we're loved by God. So, you know, if we're going to consider mission and we're going to consider what it looks like to evangelize people, we need to get our identity straight. Yeah? We need to understand what our identity is as Christians. We need to be clear about this. Not confused in any way. So it says here in 2 John verse 1 that uh, John writes to the church, the elder, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. I'm using an ESV here, by the way, but it's, if you've got an NIV, it's very, very similar. So John is writing to this church. He describes the church as the elect lady. It's quite an unusual term, or the chosen lady. A feminine term. And we know this is a deliberate image which the Bible uses you know, to describe the people of God. So sometimes we're described as a flock, which go down well here in Bucknam. Uh, sometimes we're described as living stones, part of a, a, a building, a temple of praise. But here, the church is described as the elect lady. Now, girls, we all love a good wedding, don't we? And we love to see the bride coming through the door and you know, meeting her husband at the front of the church, wherever they're getting married. And, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture, isn't it? Well, Jesus looks at the church and loves the church like a bride. He finds the church beautiful despite all of her sin, all of her darkness and blackness, all of her secrets and selfishnesses and all of her iniquities. Christ loves us and desires us. He loves the church. And the church are loved not just by Jesus, but by John here. He says, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So whoever Jesus loves, John loves. And that's such a great marker for us as Christians, isn't it? And we find that so difficult, don't we? Let's be honest. We find it really difficult to love all, of, all, all, all the Christians that we get. In fact, it's easier sometimes to love non-Christians, isn't it? We find it easier to love people who are not Christians. Christians seem to fight amongst one another. Hopefully that's not the case here. I trust it isn't. But whoever Jesus loves, John loves. And then he also says to John, but also all who know the truth anywhere, everywhere. And he gives two reasons. Uh, the first is because the truth abides in the church. And of course, Jesus in uh, John 14, 20 and 21, has said that. You know, he says that uh, he comes to abide in the life of the church. Colossians 1, 27, Paul speaks of um, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, and this, this abiding of the presence, the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, in, in our own individual lives, this is something uh, which, which is eternal. 
It's guaranteed forever. This is another reason why John uh, loves the church. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So it's worth noting at this point, isn't it? Whenever John or Paul or Peter speak to the church in the New Testament, they have eternity in mind. You know, we think all about where we're going to go on holiday. Or we think about what we're going to buy. And we think about, you know, this plot of land or that car or this investment or that investment. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But, you know, the New Testament is constantly thinking about eternity. Because what God has done is he's opened up the vista of eternity in the life and heart and mind of the church. He has disclosed to them what life is truly all about. It is about a relationship with the living God forever. And then verse 3, the greeting comes after the introduction. And in many ways, the greeting, uh, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and truth and love. This compares with so many of the other New Testament epistles. But here there's a, the greeting is qualified by the introduction because we ask ourselves the question, how do we know that the truth is in us? How do we know that we eternally will experience the love of Jesus Christ? The answer is because of grace, mercy, and peace. So grace, um, you know what grace means. Uh, Grace is love from God, forgiveness, salvation from God that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned. And it's given to us by mercy. You know, that sense of redemption and um, we talk about the, the hesed love, the covenant love, the mercy, the compassion that God has to redeem us, that stubborn love of God that keeps coming back to us despite our sins. He shows us mercy and the result of that is peace. What does Jesus say to the disciples? He says, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Or Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this isn't, this isn't like a, a temporary thing. You will have peace today, but none tomorrow. It's future oriented. The scripture says, peace will be with us. Now, as I said this morning to the congregation I was sharing with, and so often, uh, I, I share this with people as I'm out and about, you know, w- w- one of the things that you learn as a pastor, one of the things I learned just in my own life, is that people need peace. Um, there's a lot of trouble out there. There will be people here today who are worried about tomorrow, who are worried about the hospital, or worried about work, or worried about a family member, or people here who are really guilty because there's something that they've done. The bloodshed on the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the grave, is a guarantee that we will have peace. And it's not a guarantee that we coast through life without trouble. It's not a guarantee that somehow problems aren't to be aired and talked about and seriously considered. We're not naive. We're not insensitive to people's pain. But eternally, we have peace. Okay? Now that's important, as we'll see. Jesus says, do not fear. Jesus says, I am with you. God promises peace anchored in the objective reality of the gospel. And that guarantee of peace is given to us in love. It's peace from the Father. Uh, And that's a beautiful expression there, isn't it? 
Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father. Have you ever had like somebody give you a really, really amazing gift? A gift that you never, ever thought you would get. A gift that you thought you never would deserve. Uh, I was chatting to somebody about a book in church a couple of weeks ago and um, I didn't have a copy of the book. All of a sudden, a couple of days later, Amazon delivered a book to my door and I was, I was totally surprised. I, I didn't expect to receive the gift at all. And I, I said to the person, you, know, you shouldn't have done that. It's, it was a gift of grace. Well, you know, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, doesn't he? In John 17 and 22, he says, Father, let them, let the church see my glory. Give it to them. He wants to share his love. He wants to share his glory. He wants to share his presence, his peace with the church. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. But he gives it to us. We are recipients of grace, mercy, and peace. And brothers and sisters tonight, that's your primary identity. Now, we spend a lot of time in our culture, in our land, talking about identity. And this is exacerbated by political um, issues and Brexit or whatever else. And I'm not dismissing the importance of those things. I'm sure people here hold very strongly to respective political views. I'm not here to talk about that. What I'm here to say is that the primary identity of the Christian is somebody rooted in grace, mercy, and peace. That's it. That's the primary identity. Because what, secondly, and we'll pick up a bit of speed here, what that identity does, when we grasp the importance of the gospel, what that does is it fuels and, and enables us to follow in God's ways. It fuels us and enables us to follow God's ways, verses four through to six. Now, again, John, as he writes this church, he's very sensitive to the fact they're in a lot of trouble. And he's very pastoral to them. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Um, and then he says, it's interesting, um, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. He uses this term walk um, three or four times, uh, and he uses it elsewhere in 1 John, 3 John as well. Uh, it's an Old Testament term, uh, the word derek in, in Old Testament. You'll see it in um, Psalm 1. It means way or path. New Testament, peripateo. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, Paul writing Ephesians, he talks about walking in love quite a lot. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he speaks about walking in the spirit. It means to live in a manner worthy uh, and pleasing to God, a manner fueled by grace. And then what John does in 2 John here in verse 5 is he unpacks what um, it might look like. It's about following God's commands. So he's encouraged the church and then he reminds the church He's not patronizing anyone here. He's not saying, I've got this worked out. You need to look at me and listen to me. He says, we have been told. We have had a command from the beginning that we love one another. Now, again, what he's doing here is he's being sensitive to the fact that these brothers and sisters in Ephesus probably are under pressure. And he knows, just like Paul writing to the Philippians, that one or two of them might be squabbling a bit. You know, because, you know, resources are tight. 
Um, they're getting a lot of stick. There's false teaching. So John, John is really gentle with them. He says, verse 6, This is love that we walk according to, to his commandments. You know, just as you've heard from the beginning, so you should walk in them. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus from the beginning with his disciples modeled what, what the love of God looks like. John chapter 13, he washed their feet. He washed the feet of, of, of you know, every single person whose feet he washed, if you think about it, deserted him. Judas, Peter, the, 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 all of them abandoned him. But in advance, he washed their feet. He modeled grace. Philippians chapter 2, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It's just that picture of unselfishness and of love. And what Jesus does, by the giving of the Holy Spirit into the life of the church, he changes our hearts, and our hearts affect how we think, and how we think affects how we act. Heart, head, hands. And what we begin to do is the Lord and the gospel, um, is, as the Lord impresses the gospel upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we embrace to serve one another before a watching world. And the watching world begin to ask questions. And this is evangelism. This is what it looks like. And this is the work and assumption of the New Testament of Jesus and of Paul and Peter and John and the writer to the Hebrews that we let our light shine and, 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 and we shine like stars in the wicked and depraved universe and we love and we love and we love. And people are saying, you know, I'm not sure about what these Christians believe about some, some of their positions on, you know, holiness and sexual identity and the, the, the way that they love their enemies. I, you know, these Christians have strange beliefs, but there's something about them. There's something qualitatively different about the way that they care for me, take an interest in me, and I see and I observe how they love one another. They've always got a smile on their face. And so this grace which is in us marks us in our community so much so it overspills, it overflows to family, school, work, people we meet on holiday. And people say, you know, I, I want to know more. I want to know more. I don't know about you, um, Gavin and Hillary here know me well. Uh, I'm very forgetful, aren't I? Yes, I am. And when I'm sent to Tesco's with a list, uh, it, it has to be a written list because what happens is I go into Tesco's to get like an avocado or a banana or something healthy, but I find myself just going to the chocolates or maybe going to get a magazine or buying stuff I don't need. And I forget why I have originally gone to Tesco's or Sainsbury's, or wherever. We're very forgetful. So we need to be reminded of our identity, and we need to be reminded of this, because what it does is it fuels us to follow God's ways. And good preachers like John here and faithful elders are always going to remind the church to love one another. It's no accident that this is what's been spoken tonight, because we need to be, I need to be reminded of it. We need to love one another. Tell me, the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, and of Jesus and his love. We need to be reminded. Thirdly, as we think about culture change, and as we think about the challenges that face uh, us as a congregation and as Christians in the 21st century, we're warned here by John in uh, 2 John verses 7 to 10 to be discerning. Verse 7, 
for many deceivers, this is the tricky bit, this is the tension. We're called to love one another, but many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh, such a one as a deceiver and the Antichrist. All sorts of speculation about who the Antichrist is, isn't there? But someone who, confess, who, who doesn't confess that Christ has come in the flesh, don't believe in Christmas. Very nice to live in a world where we didn't have to deal with these issues. The sad truth is that Jesus has warned us in this world we will have trouble. Ultimately, it's satanic. And it's critically uh, important and wise that we perceive the world in those terms. It's spiritual reality. Um, spiritual evil uh, is a reality. It's a reality in individual hearts. And it's also a reality, as we see in our TV screens and headlines and power systems around the world. And it's also a reality in churches where people are deceived. And there are people who articulate false teaching and lies. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that false teaching is in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Early New Testament heresies creeping in. Either way, the church are told, 2 John verse 8, to watch out. Watch yourself. Or as Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, Keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine, the word. Just keep a close watch. You hear in 2 John, John is really saying, you know, it's by God's good grace, by his grace, mercy, and peace, you're, 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 you're saved and in which you persevere. But he says, you know, you should, again, using Paul's imagery, you should run in such a way as to run, win the prize. Don't be... Don't be sidetracked. Don't wreck, uh, you know, the, the, the greatness of the gospel in your life by denying the truth that Jesus is Lord. You know, don't deny the fact that Christ came in the flesh. See what it says in verse 9? Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. If you look over, actually, in 3 John, verse 9, uh, he says, I've written something to the church by but die." Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, so we get a little bit closer here to working out what anti-Christian, anti-gospel behavior looks like in, in the life of the community. And it looks like selfish behavior. There's a warning here to watch out for selfish people. This is, this is also about the importance of close fellowship, isn't it? Where we work together, where we're in a community where nobody runs ahead. Well, it's, you know, the Christian community is not a selfish and narcissistic place. It's a community that washes feet, that practices truth and love in Jesus' name sacrificially. And practically, John says here in 2 John, you know, war, he warns us not to welcome divisive people into the fellowship. Now, what, what I think this does is it emphasizes the importance of um, church discipline and good eldership. And it's why, certainly we take a chance on people. Certainly we have to show grace. I mean, that's what happened to me. Presbyterian Church in Ireland took a risk, you know, when they, when they accepted me for training. Hopefully it's paid off. But, you know, we, we have to be careful. Um, not censorous, not judgmental, but on the other hand, wise. Because there are people out there who get involved in uh, church life uh, for their own glorification and for their own selfish reasons. And, and this is what's going on. You know, deceivers are 
trying to destroy the New Testament church here in 2 John, and they do so today. And frankly, it's not hard to find where those people are, um, are at work, you know, with the prosperity gospel. Or again, I was in America, as I've said a couple of weeks ago, you could see there where people are kind of aligning a political ideology with the gospel for their own ends. Very unhelpful. So we need to watch out. We need to be discerning. Church is a community marked by that sacrificial love, that grace, mercy, and peace that only God the Father can give through the Son, Jesus Christ. Fourthly, last point, uh, nearly time uh, to finish. In a challenging culture, there's no substitute for personal love and congregation, is there? Verse 12 and 13. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink or text or Facebook. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister, that's the other churches, greet you. I can say in the spirit of verse 13, the people of Ballykeel greet you tonight. And we'll be praying for your club this week as you can pray for our teenage outreach this week. Let's think about verse 12 a little bit. Um, during COVID, it was, it was horrible, wasn't it? And we weren't allowed to meet and we weren't allowed to congregate for long periods of time, for months on end. And it was a really painful experience. And um, such a joy uh, to be able to meet again as the restrictions began to ease. But it's a fact that some people have, uh, for whatever reason, decided not to congregate. And come back. Now I understand there are people at home who can't come for various reasons of illness and I understand that. I'm not criticizing those people but there are some people who've chosen to stay at home in different congregations for different reasons. The scripture is encouraging people to meet. You know Hebrews, um, Hebrews 13 is not don't give up the habit of meeting you know one another. Meeting together. F- fellowship is so important isn't it? You know, we can come into um, I can gather in a prayer meeting tonight be really encouraged. By the way, so encouraging to have so many people in your prayer meeting at the start of the service. So encouraging. And I have to say, uh, we're not a big church in Ballykill, but it's been encouraging for me, um, and I'm not saying this in any way to boast, but just to, just to see more people, again, this morning in our prayer meeting, the average age of our prayer meetings come right down. A youth team walked in from Arizona, but it was just so encouraging because they were meeting with us from a different part of the world, joining us this week, being with us, being together. And, and, and that sense of you know, meeting together is so important, isn't it? You can just put your hand on somebody's shoulder and say, can I pray for you this week? You know, can, I, can I undertake to, to do something, to serve, to love, to support you in some way this new week? You know, those kinds of small acts are so, so significant, aren't they? And maybe that's all we can do in the course of a week because we're busy people. But to unselfishly meet, to give an hour on a Sunday morning and an hour on a Sunday evening and encourage one another is so, so important. It's like a foretaste of glory. Just a simple, small acts of kindness, meeting, praying, sharing together around the word of God. You know, evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And I trust everybody here believes in the good news of Jesus Christ, of his death for our sin, his resurrection from the grave for our salvation and the hope of glory. 
I trust we all believe in that. And extending the message of that kingdom, his kingdom in this world is hard. There are significant challenges for us today, as I said at the start, but there were for the first century church as well. The message is the same. There's a beauty in God's truth which changes lives as we come together in community, hear the word and live it out. The Lord's people hearing the Lord's word on the Lord's day together in unity. There's something deeply attractive about that. Um, There's a guy, Tim Chester, uh, writing um, his book, Total Church. Uh, He said, there's nothing more uh, attractive and persuasive uh, and apologetic and explanation uh, for the gospel than a community of God's people who love one another. May that be the case here in Bakna or wherever the word of God is truly believed on in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this congregation. Thank you, Lord God, for their commitment down through the years, Lord, many years in this place. I pray that you help them to love one another. And I pray for your grace, mercy, and peace to be their experience as they trust you, Lord, believe in you, and love you. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.